Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Jan Bender-Shetler from the History and Political Science Department, and I'd like to welcome all of you to an interdisciplinary conversation on debt. Over the past number of years, uh, here at Goshen College, both faculty and students have been enjoying a number of interdisciplinary conversations, both in our classrooms and beyond that. And I think what we're learning is that looking at any problem, whether it's the environmental crisis or immigration policy, that we are enriched by considering a variety of perspectives and analytical approaches. So we invite you this morning to experience an interdisciplinary conversation with faculty on a topic that's been in the news constantly over the past number of years, that of debt. We all experience debt. Maybe right now you're struggling with uh, student loans or credit card debt, and at the same time our Congress is struggling with the national debt. Now, when we look at a, a topic like debt, many of us would think this is, would be entirely relegated to the field of economics or business. But if you look much more closely at the idea of debt, it's fundamentally about our obligations to each other and how we repay or pay those obligations. So in that way, the conversation spills out into history, anthropology, religion, peace studies, literature, biology, and on and on. Um, and so to start this interdisciplinary conversation about debt, we turn to a recent book by David Graeber called Debt, The First Thousand Years, in which he explores the history of debt, but from his position as an anthropologist. And today, in order to get us going, we're going to show about a seven-minute video clip of an interview with him about the book. Graeber himself is an anarchist, a leading theorist of the Occupy movement, and an award-winning cultural anthropologist. What drives him in this book is his anger about the international system of finance that has caught so many developing countries in a perpetual debt crisis to the detriment of the poorest of the poor. And as you'll see in the interview, he believes that, the debt, that debt is more about morality, social convention, than it is about economics. So that in this way, debt and debt imagery are relevant to all kinds of fields of inquiry far beyond the four perspectives that we're representing here today. So after watching the interview with David Graeber, we're going to have five-minute responses from four different faculty members who are up here about the idea of debt and obligation from their disciplinary perspective. And then after that, we'll have time for a few uh, questions or at least interchange between them about uh, how what they've said interacts with each other. Um, they will just go in the order that I'm going to introduce them, one after another. Uh, the first is Jim Halteman, who's a visiting professor of economics. Uh, the second is Jonathan Schramm, who's assistant professor of sustainability and environmental education at Mary Lee. Uh, the third is Joanne Brandt, who's professor of Bible, religion, and philosophy. And the last, Regina Shan Stalsfus, assistant professor of peace, justice, and conflict studies. So, uh, turn your attention to the screen and we'll watch David Graeber first. Mm -hmm. 
Almost 40 years ago, on August 15, 1971, President Nixon took America off the gold standard. We must protect the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world. Which meant, among other things, there were really no longer boundaries in the amount of money that could be printed. This began what anthropologist and author David Graeber says is the latest pendulum swing away from an economy based on hard currency to one based on virtual money or credit, which can lead to debt spinning out of control, everyone's favorite topic this summer. Graeber's new book is entitled Debt, The First 5,000 Years. The book traces the origins of owing all the way back to Mesopotamia and explores how debt and morality became intertwined, among other intriguing details. We've invited David Graeber to our studio today to help explain why being consumed by debt is nothing new. What were the first debts as we understand debt today? Well, the really interesting question is, is how moral debts, the sense of obligation promises, since a debt is really just a promise, turn into something that can be quantified and transferred. And for that reason, you can pass them from one person to another. And in a way, that's exactly what money is. There are debts that you can transfer. When did debt become a negative? It's hard to trace. It seems to go back to the very beginnings of written history. But there's always a terrible ambivalence about it. Because if you look at history, on the one hand, you know, not paying your debts is the essence of immorality. But people who lend money are almost universally also considered to be evil. That's one of the mysteries I was trying to resolve. There's a sense of moral confusion about debt. It seems like, in a way, both parties to a transaction are at least in terrible moral peril and probably, actually, both sinners and bad people. So there's a sense that people are constantly worrying the fact that basic economic relations causes everyone to be bad. What kind of things changed debt over time? Well, the most significant pattern that I found was whether the predominant form of money is virtual money, credit money, what, that we have now, or whether people are actually using gold, silver, bronze coins in everyday transactions. For most of human history, virtual money, it's not something new, virtual money has actually been the predominant form. Now, when people recognize that, when pe that money is just a promise that we make to each other, then money doesn't seem quite so ine ineffable. It doesn't seem quite such a moral absolute. If I owe you money, well, if there's a problem, we can renegotiate it. For example, in ancient Mesopotamia, they practiced periodic debt forgiveness. A king would come in, the society would be breaking down because people were falling into debt traps, running away from their creditors, joining nomadic bands. So new kings would very often say, all right, clean slate. All debts are forgiven. Was it in Mesopotamia that we first saw the first tab? So to yeah. speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the interesting things I discovered about Mesopotamia was that they didn't actually make scales accurate enough to weigh out pieces of silver small enough to buy a duck or a piece of meat in the marketplace. Uh, in fact, people put pretty much everything on credit. If you go to a bar in ancient Mesopotamia, you put things on the tab. Then every six months to a year, people would come in with grain or whatever they had and pay up. But almost all transactions were on credit. Let's talk about what's been happening this summer. Uh, is there such a thing as a debt ceiling, really? Well, the debt ceiling is something that only exists in America, and it's a kind of a moral myth. Um, one thing I really did discover is that a lot of when people start talking about debt, they're not really talking about economics, they're talking about morality. It's a great way to create a moral drama. 
we must balance our accounts. Households have to do it. America has to do it too. Of course, America's budget is nothing like a household, mainly for the reason that American dollars actually are U.S. debt. So if there wasn't a U.S. debt, banks would have to produce all the money. Um, so the analogy is completely false. However, it's very easy to say, it strikes a certain appeal, and in a situation where people don't feel they can address the actual problems going on, such as an extraordinarily high unemployment level, um, it's something that people feel that they can mobilize people around. It strings a bell somehow, it strikes a chord. Explain to us a little further what you mean when you say the American dollar is U.S. debt. Well, the system we have, which operates through central banks, actually goes back to 1694. It was invented in England. And in 1694, a group of English merchants made a loan of 1.2 million pounds to the king, William II, who was pursuing some war in France. Um, in exchange for that, the king granted them the right to call themselves the Bank of England and to take the money that he now owed them and to issue it in the form of banknotes to other people. That's why a pound says, I promise to pay. It's not actually a gold coin. It is a promise to pay a gold coin. Um, and it's a promise by the king. If the king ever paid back his debt, the British monetary system would no longer exist. Now, Oddly enough, the American system, based on the Federal Reserve, is really a variation on the same idea. Dollars, for the most part, are U.S. debt issued through the Federal Reserve, which actually creates the money just pretty much by made, waving a magic wand and making it appear, lends it to the U.S., and then circulates it in the form of dollars. If the U.S. debt disappeared entirely, banks would have to actually create all the money. You write on page 3079 of your book that mm -hmm. everyone is in debt, Mm -hmm. And you go on to write, one must go into debt to achieve a life that goes in any way beyond sheer survival. So what is the root cause for modern survival being tied to debt? Well, it's very disturbing. Because as I was saying, the great social problem in antiquity was the danger that the bulk of the population would fall into debt. They would become effectively enslaved to the very small percent, one percent or so, of the population who are the creditors. And they would start having to sell off their children or sell themselves into slavery. If you look at what's happening in America today, it's not that different. Everybody's in debt. Most people have jobs they probably wouldn't really want to have otherwise. I mean, they're renting themselves out to other people rather than selling themselves. But I mean, I think if Aristotle were here today, I rather doubt he'd think that was a really important distinction. I've come to the disturbing conclusion that most people from the ancient world, if they were here today, would see most of us as almost literally slaves. The working poor you're talking yeah, about. People who are in debt and working at jobs they don't want to do because of that. And then most of the wealth mm -hmm. is held by the top 1%. 1%, precisely. But there is reason for hope because, as I say, periods of virtual money also tend to be periods where people realize that debt is just a promise. It's just a social arrangement. By definition, promises can be renegotiated. And I think that's what's starting to happen. And what we learned in 2008 is if you're a big player, if you're really important, of course your debts can be finagled. They can be made to disappear. With AIG. AIG is a great example. I mean, nobody quite knows how many billions of perhaps trillions of dollars worth of debt were sort of made to magically disappear one way or another. Um, so now we've learned that. Uh, money is really just a political social arrangement. And if democracy is going to mean anything, that means everybody has to be in, in on the process of where we decide what promises are made and what promises are kept. The name of the book is Debt, The First 5,000 Years. David Graeber, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. It's good to be back, and it's a better setting than I was in 
last time, but we're going to race through five minutes, and I want to do four things in five minutes. First, uh, why most concerns about the debt don't tell the whole picture. Second, what is the difference between good and bad debt? Third, why do or why you need the entire liberal arts perspective to ex uh, assess how indebtedness uh, indebted you are? And finally, how can it be that those with the most debt often have the most fulfilled lives? Now, that may sound like a long agenda in five minutes, so let's get moving here. First, I want to start with a very simple balance sheet, a basic accounting framework, where you have a liability and an asset. And on one side, and the liability, you take out a loan. You have a liability on one side. But on the other side, you bought a computer with it, so you have an asset. One of the first things I learned here in economics from Carl Kreider was that, that balance. When you have a liability, you have an asset. So we want to look at the quality of the asset <clears throat> and compare it with the loan. So the issue now really is to focus on whether the computer is worth carrying the debt. There are two ways you can use a computer. One is as a capital good. You can use it in your business, it can generate more than 100, and you can pay off the debt and have money in excess or profit. That would be uh, one kind of debt. The other thing you could do is to use it as a consumption good. You go to your dorm, play games, or whatever you do with a computer that doesn't earn you any money, but it gives you some pleasure. And if you're going to look at a debt uh, borrowing for that, you're going to have to look at your income stream and see whether it can pay off the debt. So you really have two kinds of assets there, a consumption asset and an investment asset. So let's go on and look a little bit uh, beyond this and look at some broader implications of the kinds of liabilities and the debts that you accumulate. Uh, first, some of you, all of you, maybe most of you, are going to get married someday. Well, that's an asset or most people look at it that way, or they wouldn't do it, but they make promises. There are legal promises, and there are moral promises involved in a marriage, and that's the liability, that's the debt you accumulate. So that's one example of a debt that many of us live with and very happily uh, balance it with the asset. Uh, I'm going to skip some of these and just go to the ones that have stars. You pay tuition. You um, have some debt, maybe, coming to college, but on the asset side, you've got a college education. Some of that's consumption. You have a lot of fun here, maybe. And some of that's investment. You turn it into a job that leads to a return, and in both cases, you have some income flow, can cover the debt. Uh, jobs gained in infrastructure uh, is an asset on one side, stimulus package, government borrowing on the other side. So we've got to look to see whether the jobs gained and the infrastructure developed, our capital goods, whether they return things, uh, jobs gained, certainly, more income, more tax revenue coming back, you pay the debt. So what we're looking at here, uh, I want to get a different kind of debt, and this is uh, what I'm calling social, a social norm debt. You get married. Now we're back to marriage again, or, or rather you get uh, invited to a wedding. And so uh, then, then you want to have, then you're getting married, and so you got to make up your attendance list. So how do you do that? Well, a lot of things you do is, well, who, who invited me to their wedding? And you feel sort of a social obligation. We call it an uh, obligation of reciprocity. That's an obligation that you feel it's a debt you've accumulated when you make out the asset. Then, of course, people come. Uh, you, you got to attend a lot of weddings. Uh, so that may be a little a bit of an exception, but I think I'm going to skip over the rest of these by attending this lecture, you have an opportunity cost. You could be doing something else. That's a debt you accumulated. Let's hope there's a little asset here. Now let's go on and 
look at a f the nature of these debts. I'm, I'm interested here in how this, uh, uh, and I'm suggesting we better stop complaining about debt in isolation. We need to look at the important questions that are involved here. And so uh, let's, first of all, how are the obligations of debt structured? Are they legal? In many cases, the things we looked at are, you have a, a debt that you have to pay legally. Uh, they may be social. This, the reciprocity norms are a, a way in which these debts can be structured. Many times there's a moral framework around which debts are structured. The marriage, having a child, obligation to raise the child. That can be legal, it can be moral. So how are they structured? What is the true value of the asset? That's one thing I've been trying to emphasize on the asset side. Does the asset really bring about uh, benefits that are important? Uh, how are the classical virtues and moral teachings, how do they impact these uh, choices of assets? When are the uh, assets and liabilities realized? And we didn't look too much at the future, present kind of thing, but if you think of it in terms of the environment, uh, we have a lot of obligations, we have assets uh, and we have debts, but some of them are way into the future. And so how do we discount? How do we value the future? What is a life 100 or 1,000 years from now worth? What happens when those who accumulate debt and have, ma have made bad choices and they can't meet them? Uh, we have bankruptcy laws, we have all these sorts of things that have to be worked out. Okay, well, I'm, uh, finally, I'm just gonna look at a, a couple of these are rather poor slides taking pictures from the Wall Street Journal, but the top one may be of interest to you. Uh, student loans, uh, almost a trillion dollars now, and it's the one area that has had the most increases recently. And these, this area here is cons all consumer debt. It doesn't include mortgages, but all the other kinds. And you can see uh, the various ways in which we accumulate debt there as households. Uh, coming down, the other is a few. But those together add up to about three and a quarter trillion dollars. Uh, better look at in the perspective of total household debt, and this is another rather poor picture, but the top blue part is that three and a quarter trillion that we looked at in the previous page. Everything under it is mortgage debt. So you can see the largest framework of monetary debt that we've got going in households is really mortgage, but that's been on the decline, and it's the mortgage paying down that has brought total debt down. The other areas, the blue areas, stayed pretty much the same as we come down. Well, finally, uh, if this, you can see anything out of this, you can see what age group you might be in and what average debt households have. Your age, uh, not too much. Uh, my age, not too much. But in the middle, uh, you get a little more, and a lot of that's mortgage. So look at the value of the asset. Look at the nature of the obligation. Uh, pay the obligations. Uh, but uh, in, that can be done often in many different kinds of coin. And we'll put that. Good morning. It's nice to be here with you all and to step out of the confines of Mary Lee and join you here for convocation. Um, so I'd like to ask the question, do we owe an ecological debt and what would that look like? What, how would we pay a sea cucumber or a wildebeest something that they're going to be able to use and understand? Well, I think there are a lot of ways that ecologists have developed a lot of different tools we've developed to try to understand how we go about this. And as a bit of a side note for now, there are a lot of ways in which our Christian framework of operating can really influence the decisions we make. But let me propose one, one central tool that ecologists use, and that's that the currency of life on Earth is really found in two main things, energy 
and matter, or materials. And there's a big difference between those two. Because matter, the stuff that you can, tend, you can touch, um, is limited on Earth, and it cycles. So that's what's in this diagram. It's a real simple version of a sort of an ecosystem description here. You can see those blue arrows moving between plants, called producers in this diagram, to things that eat the plants. And those blue arrows represent the materials of the plants that those consumers are eating and then reorganizing in their bodies to make their own tissues. Other consumers eat them. When everything dies, decomposers act on them and then break the, that matter back apart into simpler molecules, which are symbolized in that lower left pool there. But you can see those blue arrows move in a cycle. The red lines represent energy, and this is quite different because energy flows through Earth's systems. It comes from the sun, it's been coming from the sun since the start of our solar system, and it fuels, essentially, the processes of life on Earth. So that's an important distinction, is that there's essentially an infinite amount of energy available to us. Not all at once, but it's continual. But matter limits life. Think, for instance, of a desert, where there might be plenty of sunshine, um, but the key thing there, obviously, is that there's not as much water for plant life to sustain itself. So the whole pyramid of life is, is shorter in that kind of a situation. Okay, so if, this, if matter and energy are the currencies, the key currency of life, where are they on Earth? And this is a, maybe a little different way of thinking about riches. But this map shows you the, what's called the primary productivity of Earth's ecosystems. In other words, how much matter can producers incorporate into themselves each year. And that's related to um, having all the requirements of life being able to be met. So as you might expect, the tropics show up as a dark band there. In other words, there's a lot of sunlight there. There's also a lot of moisture. Life is good for Earth's systems there. And then as you get towards the polar regions, uh, life becomes a little harder. And you'll see in this case, much, much of the US is kind of moderate in ecological wealth, even though we're, we're the richest country in the world. And Indiana, you know, is right in there, pretty average. Not much happening here because of our long winters. So if this is the situation before human effect, um, this is an important diagram to look at. This is that same map, but in this case, it's showing you the percentage of that primary productivity that humans are using in our daily lives, where darker colors represent a greater portion of that, that primary productivity of Earth's systems being used. And you can see in a number of places around the globe, that's a pretty dark red-brown color, meaning that up to 100% of the primary productivity of that spot on Earth is being used for human uses each year. Think of a, a very intensive agricultural area, like northern Indiana, or a place where there's a high human population density, like Europe, India, China. Um, so the point here from these two diagrams is that we're using a huge amount of Earth's capital every year just for our own uses, and that leaves minimal amounts for a lot of other critters. Um, so how do we keep going at this? How do we keep having this deficit spending? If we're using this much of Earth's systems, why hasn't it collapsed? Well, the, there are a lot of answers here, but the simplest thing is circled in the red there. Of course, we've been using fossil fuels to drive our, our daily lives for a couple hundred years now. And there's a lot of numbers on here, but the big one to notice, two numbers, in that fossil fuel box you see 3,700, that's gigatons of carbon a ton of estimated carbon in fossil fuels. Each year, we're only burning off about six of those. So you can see we have a lot of carbon left stored in fossil fuels. The question will be moral long before it's a physical limit. So what is the conclusion I draw from all this wandering? Uh, well, ecology does talk about the world being limited in terms of yearly productivity, which is what our lives are built on just as much as the life of every other creature is. 
But competition for those limited resources is not the only way of understanding the world. Um, ecology was driven by studies of competition between organisms for a long time. But um, more and more, we're realizing the role of cooperation and what's called mutualism in ecology for how things are structured. So grounding our lives in that kind of mutualistic cooperation is going to take a very different way of thinking about our daily life. But thankfully, that's good work for all of us to be engaging in. Um, and it allows, as I alluded to earlier, this expression of God, God the God-given creativity that we as stewards of this world have. So thanks. Um, faculty read a very short excerpt from Daniel Graber's book, and uh, in that he indicated that, uh, first of all, he thought that this use of debt uh, and, uh, as a metaphor was highly problematic, and uh, his notion of that reciprocity was highly problematic. Now, we only read like five pages of this very thick book that Jan held up, but that's not going to stop me from saying I disagree with the whole book. Okay, and it's premise. Um, I think that debt is a really rich and helpful metaphor. And if we look at the way the Bible uses the concept of debt in its metaphoric structure, I hope that in my five minutes you'll come to at least suspect that I'm right. Uh, okay. um, first, uh, I'm, two points that my talk is going to gravitate around. One, that debt is a metaphor for all sorts of obligations. And secondly, this concept of debt has to be situated within the broad trajectory that the Bible is trying to send humanity out on. And that's a trajectory towards liberation, but also towards reconciliation. And so we want to get liberated from our encumbering debts that enslave us, but we want to incur new obligations, the obligations that cement relationships that reconciliation is all about. So first of all, you know, before we get to metaphor, debt is a real problem in the world, and it was a serious problem in antiquity. Slavery, or debt accounted for most slavery within uh, within Canaanite Judean society. And if we look at what the Bible has to say about that debt, we have the laws of, of the sabbatical and the jubilee year that are designed to help release people from debt, slavery, and to prevent them from falling further into de debt. And so um, we have uh, on the one side, yes, laws about debt and repayment, but we also have this trajectory towards liberation from debt. What interests me most, though, is the use of debt as a metaphor for social obligations. And I think when the justice system began to think about violations as debt, as something you could quantify and repay back, and when it developed the system that we call lex talionis, the eye for an eye, a debt for a debt, that was really a movement towards equity. And it was to stop people from saying, you harm me, now I'm going to kill you. Or uh, one member of your family violated one member of my family, so my whole family feels violated, so we're going to go and rot repercussions on your entire family. When that violation became a debt to be repaid, then it became the limit of the harm done. And that was a good move. 
the thing that interests me most is this notion of debt as obligation. And in the ancient world, the language of debt was used to describe the entire fabric of society. If you did a favor for somebody, they were indebted to you. If you hired them to fix your plumbing, uh, there was a debt that your patronage of their services developed. If you paid attention to somebody, if you invited them to your party, in the stratified society, if you invite somebody lower down, that's, that's giving them more status and they owe you some sort of debt of social repayment. But in this highly stratified society, there wasn't an idea that, um, the idea, you know, if I'm above somebody and I do them a service, uh, you don't want them to repay it, pay it off end the debt. That's a sort of a money thing. I hire you to fix my plumbing, uh, you do the service, I pay you, end of relationship. In the ancient world, these were the ways people got things done and helped each other out. There was no you know, social security network. This became your social security network. So these relationships were about reciprocity, they were good, and they weren't about paying it off but continuing the relationship. What changes in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, is the idea that you uh, extend these services beyond what you normally would to people who might not be able to pay back in a way that you would want. Um, you might not want to be acknowledged by the person at the lower end of the, cat, uh, of the totem pole. You might not want to be invited to their parties. But in, in uh, Jesus' teaching, you extend these relationships far beyond. And uh, if somebody asks to lend, borrow, you lend without question. But that doesn't mean that you don't necessarily hope for repayment somewhere along the way. Where we get confused is we think we're supposed to be giving everything away free. Uh, the concept of freedom, uh, of, of entering into these relationships, lending, that uh, is in the Bible is this concept of free access. That if somebody needs something, they should have access to it. Uh, God says in Isaiah 55, you know, come and drink without paying, come and eat without money. It's the idea that you can approach God without having to pay first. But that doesn't end obligation because as soon as you eat or drink, you incur an obligation. Indeed, if you look carefully, Paul calls us all debtors. That's what we become. We become debtors to God. And the way you pay it is not to repay God directly, but to, as the movie says, pay it forward. Uh, but if you don't pay it forward, you're dishonoring the gift. You're dishonoring the relationship with God. And so I think debt is a very helpful way of thinking about things. It quantifies and makes possible justice but it also helps us think about the richness of our relationships. And I'll end with that. So when thinking about this question from a peace, justice, conflict studies uh, perspective, I think of the consideration of being in right relationship with one another and who to whom is what owed in that. 
when we acknowledge systems and structures that hinder right relationships, systems of oppression. Who is marginalized, who is at the wrong end, uh, who are the people or who is the person that becomes objectified or thingified, becomes a thing rather than a person. Who has been wronged and then how is that wrong made right? Looking at systemic issues, looking at structures, uh, we need to take into account historical context and historical power imbalances, um, thinking in terms of people who have been victimized and groups that have done the victimization. So it is helpful for me in thinking about this, the, the um, issue that I center my thoughts on are the issue of possible, probable, or what do we do if we're not going to do reparations? It's around reparations. Uh, a quote from Martin Luther King that I don't often like to use because it comes from a speech in which um, his whole thought gets, seems to get packed into this one famous speech and then we forget everything else that he talked about. But he did talk a lot about poverty, systemic poverty, generational poverty. So here's the quote from 1963. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro, Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. And here he speaks in 1963 to the same issue that we have today. For uh, the system, the long system in uh, the Americas and certainly in the United States, uh, specifically of slavery, several hundred years of unpaid labor that builds um, what people often, perhaps always say, is uh, the wealthiest, one of the most wealthiest, one of the most wealthy nations on the planet. What is owed and how does that get paid? What is the debt uh, of, an of an economic structure in the US that depended upon free labor for 430 years, an infrastructure that we still benefit from today that was built by people who did not have the choice of saying, yes, this is what I want to do, um, and people who were not paid. It seems clear at this point in history that monetary reparations are not something that is going to be on the table. Every so often it does come to the table and it gets quickly shot down because um, really how could you pay that and to who do you pay it and um, then the conversation gets mired down in what's fair and how is this fair and all sorts of reasons why it can't be done. But there is work being done in other ways of thinking about how, do, how, how does a country, how does a nation pay this kind of debt? And it's centering around thinking about the issue of collected his, collective historical trauma. What happens to a people, a collective of people for whom a great um, wrong has been done? 
uh, looking at the connections in those communities that have experienced such a thing, even if it was generations and generations ago, but seeing the same kinds of effects that more recent individual trauma happens. Loss, um, post-traumatic stress disorder as part of the collective experience members of a collective who have been subject, subjected to horrendous events uh, do experience the mark that that leaves on a group's consciousness, uh, how they conceive of who they are, how they remember where they have been and think about what is possible in the future. Um, the loss or perhaps the non-remembrance at all of an old identity, an old name. Um, even for those who uh, did not experience the trauma directly. We see it in things like physical health and life expectancy. We certainly see it in economic divides. We see it in mental health. And so the question becomes, well, then how do we pay it? One way into that conversation, um, since it seems clear that money will not be a part of the conversation, is the naming the naming and saying why and how uh, the event happened, saying that it was wrong, and not putting a limit to the naming, not saying, okay, we will talk about this for X number of years, and then we really need to forget all about it and move forward. But to name it and commemorate it uh, four generations forward, not putting a limit on that. Thinking carefully about who gets to do the naming, who gets to say what this event was and what it meant, not only to the people that were traumatized by it, but the, but the entire nation, to use the, the reparations example. And then determining together collective strategies to move forward. Uh, this goes back, I think, to what we heard in the first presentation of um, not thinking about debt in isolation, but opening it up, thinking largely, thinking in big terms about what has been gained and what is owed and how do we move forward into that together. Okay, even though this may not have helped you figure out how to get rid of your own debts, I hope that it showed you how every one of these very different disciplines uses the language of death and death of debt in ways that are really integral to their discipline. Uh, Jim started out by talking about how debt is kind of a social glue that keeps us uh, keeps things functioning and and. Joanne picked up on that and talked about how it, it forms relationships. So there's some really positive ways that, that we can think about the idea of debt. And then Jonathan reminds us of some of those absolutely hard physical realities of debts that's going to be paid by somebody uh, and, and who needs to pay that. And then Regina going to thinking about something like reparations and trauma and how we heal. So going in so many directions that I think can help us to, to start uh, thinking how those ideas uh, cross the boundaries. So thank you so much for listening and uh, go on and have your own conversations.